Who saw you and brought you to Hollywood? Who saw me and brought me to Hollywood? Were you on Broadway at that time? Yeah, I had already played Low State, and I was at the Capitol Theater in uh, Washington, D.C. I was the official master of ceremonies at the White House for six and a half years under the Roosevelt administration. Were you really? Yes. Uh-huh. As for the gridiron luncheon for Eddie Cantor introduced me the first time for the... Um, March of Dimes. March of Dimes. Sure. Now, the scene changes. I had made a screen test in 1932, and nothing happened, you know. <laughs> I said, well, what happened? They said, they didn't like the hat. Hmm. I said, the hat? I'll buy, I'll buy a new hat, you know. They didn't want to hurt my feelings. So I'm at the White House, and Mickey Rooney came back, and little Mickey says, what am I going to do out on stage, you know? He says, this is all kind of new to me and stuff. So I wrote a, a routine for he and I to do, you know, on the stage. So he came out, and afterwards, he went back, and he says to Mr. Mary, he says, I saw the funniest guy I ever saw in my life. He says, you got to go see him, or get him out here or something. Frank Brzezaghi overheard this, and then I was working with Lupe Velez. Oh, boy. Hey? I'm talking now about Metro. This is after I made the first picture, uh, having a, a wonderful time. I was at Low State, New York at that time. Yeah. This is the first picture. Yes. That's about uh, 1937. And that's Ginger Rogers. Yes. In the green. Ginger Rogers. And you know who was in that? In Douglas Spain? Fairbanks, Jr. And you know who else? Lucille Ball was one of the more or less like an extra in the picture. And we sat in the dressing room and talked. What year would this have been about? About 1938, 37. 37, because in 38 I was on radio then. After Bob Hope's program signed off at 10.30, the Red Skelton Show signed on. It debuted on Tuesday, October 7th, 1941. By February of 1944, it was pulling a rating of 29.9. Ozzy and Harriet Nelson were heavily featured. And then after that, we went into Radio Red Skelton. We were all figuring. And you played Junior's mother. On I did a <laughs> mother, a mean little kid. <laughs> and then I did Daisy June, mm -hmm. Clem Canigo Hopper. I did Daisy Dead Eye, yeah. yeah. And I did yeah. Calamity June. Uh -huh. <laughs> Did you have fun working with Red? Uh, oh, and, yeah, he's, he's such a brilliant comedy. Mm -hmm. I've often said, when he was right, when his timing was so right, I used to get chills down my back. He <laughs> was like listening to a great symphony, you uh, know? Uh, he's such a talent. Skelton was so supercharged that he couldn't do a pre-show warm-up. He left the audience exhausted and practically catatonic during the main show. So Skelton reversed the formula and gave his fans an after-show. Among his peers, it was considered the hottest comedy act in town. Lorraine Tuttle, who later appeared with Ozzie and Harriet on their own show, also starred on the Red Skelton show. I understand that he put on an after show for the studio audience when the regular radio broadcast Yes, he broadcast did, at least done. an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. He got steamed up, you know, and the half-hour show didn't really satisfy him, so he kept the audience there afterwards. When we, when we were on Fridays, we would have a preview on Thursday night, and he would go on and on and on and on. We'd have to stay there because we'd have to wait till this after show was over before we could listen to the record. And oh, we would uh -huh. listen to the record to see how things went. And then we came back the next day and did the live show. Always live. I don't think I ever went on that we weren't live. Yeah. Did you have to do two shows then, didn't you, for the West Coast and the East Coast? No. In that case, no, because it was taken off on transcription and replayed. Many times we would do a 5 o'clock show, mm -hmm. and that would be taken off on transcription and played later. But in the old days, we did do two shows. Mm -hmm. We would have an afternoon show, a 5 o'clock show, or a 5.30 show, and then come back and do it again at 8.30. Mm -hmm. 
But those were a lot of audience shows, too. We would wear street clothes in the afternoon and come back and wear evening clothes. Oh, you really? Oh, would yes, it was a very glamorous two business. Two different uh-huh. audiences. Mm-hmm. Huh? Over at the Huntington Hartford, when I go backstage there, I think of the many radio shows we used to do there. The Lux Radio Show went mm-hmm. on there, and lots of radio shows went on because they were audience shows. That's why I felt that radio was not just a microphone working kind of mm-hmm. show; it was audience participation. And the American Armed Forces and their allies, a rebroadcast of the Red Skelton Show, with Shirley Mitchell, Ozzie Nelson, Harriet Hilliard, and starring Red Skelton. Thank you. Thank you very much. Those CBs, they speak right up. Thank you very much and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How are you, Fat? Oh, just fine, Red. Say, how'd you enjoy your visit to Washington, D.C.? Oh, I had a fine trip. Uh, when I got to Washington, the officials told me I could have anything I wanted, and then they backed out. Well, did you ask for something hard to get? Yeah, a hotel room. <laughs> I hear you had lunch at the White House. Yeah, the only thing I didn't like, I didn't get any butter. You know, the chain on my knife was so short, I couldn't reach it. <laughs> about us, though. Do we have anyone with us tonight who plays an important part in our American way of living? Yes, Red, and I'd like you to meet Tippy O'Connor, a bellboy from one of the finest hotels in Los Angeles. Well, how are you tonight, O'Connor? Uh, I'm fine, Red. Say, Tippy, with all the hotels so full these days, I guess they keep you kind of busy, don't they? <laughs> yes, Red, the guests expect us to be everywhere at once. Really? Yeah, each one believes that he's the most important one in the hotel, and that we bellboys should be ready to wait on him at the drop of a hat. Yeah, well, it takes more than a drop of a hat to get a bellboy. <laughs> <laughs> Something with a little more jingle to it. <laughs> what hotel do you hop at, Tippy? Well, I'm the chief bellhop at the No Vacancy Hotel. Oh, no... <laughs> <laughs> well, you're kidding. What's the real name of that? <laughs> no. Huh? no, that's right. It is? Yeah. <laughs> Either he's lost his place or he's dead. I don't know. <laughs> is that the name of the place, really? Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, you're supposed to say, no, we haven't got any room, so it don't make any difference anyhow. <laughs> say, do the, do the guests ever try to sneak out without paying their bill? Yeah, I remember one time we caught a man trying to disguise himself as a woman. Yeah, I know a fellow who did that once. He tried to run away, see? But the skirt was so tight, I tripped almost broke my neck. <laughs> I love hotels, though. <laughs> well, most show folks consider a hotel their home. Yeah, I used to have fun. One time I saw a fellow sitting on a stepladder looking over a transom, and I pushed him off. A gentleman gesture. No, it was a little crowded for both of them. <laughs> I used to be a lifesaver in the hotel. I used to look over the uh, over the transom, you know. <laughs> I used to look over the transom, and then when the woman yelled for help, I'd run in and save her. <laughs> Hey, tell me, have you ever had any strange experiences in the hotel? Oh, yes. Read what's here, of course. <laughs> 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 One time a man called up and he said he had a feeling he was going to die. Yeah, why? It seems his wife was standing in front of him with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> Did she shoot him? I don't know. I don't know, but when they carried him out, he had an extra button on his shirt. <laughs> Well, before I forget it, why do they call you Tippy, huh? Well, that's the nickname my friends hung on me because I always do extra things for the hotel guests. 
so that I'll get a bigger tip. Yeah? But people seem to think we bellboys like dimes best. <laughs> well, maybe those tight pants you fellows wear, I guess they figure a dime is the only coin will fit in them. <laughs> well, oh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for dropping around, Tippy. I promise you, though, if I ever stop at your hotel, I'll give you something bigger than a dime. You will? Yeah, a nickel. <laughs> When we were little tiny boys, my mother took us to the B.F. Keys Theater in Indianapolis, where she worked. She ran the elevator, and then after the theater closed at night, she worked as a charwoman, and she gave us tickets to go to the theater. And I sat there, and I watched the first time I'd ever seen a, a stage show. I sat there, and I watched all the actors and stuff, not until the comedian came on. He fell on the piano, and he'd shoot, look down at a gun, and it would go off and all these stuff. And I turned, and I watched the audience. And I saw all these people who had great tragedy on their faces. It disappeared. And they started laughing and stuff. And I said, boy, that's what I want to do. I'm going to try to make people laugh. So I was sitting on the elevator stool. My mother was running the elevator up and down. And I said, you know, Mur, I said, I'm, I called her Mur, because I'd never say mother, mm. you know. I said, Mur, you know, I'm, I'm going I'm to be in show business. I want to be... And she looked at me and she said, well, I knew that it would come out in one of you boys. I didn't know which one. And then she told me that my father had been a clown at one time with Hagenback and Wallace Circus. Later, I joined the circus. But I went home that night. And the next day, I stopped by the grocery store and I got a little box, a little wooden box that like oranges and stuff used to come in, you know. And I cut it down. And I made a proscenium arch across the front. And I cut little clothespins cut faces on them and, and draw them and paint the little faces in as my actors. And I would write these plots and things. About I was about seven, eight years old then. I would write these little short stories and let them act them out. And I had my own little theater, the curtains and everything. For three seasons, Skelton's popularity soared. But then he got divorced and lost his marriage to Ferment. The Army drafted Skelton in 1944. MGM and radio sponsor Raleigh Cigarettes tried to help with no avail. The draft board also turned down his request to join the Special Services Branch for Entertainers. Skelton's last radio program was on D-Day, June 6, 1944. The next day, he was formally inducted as a private. Without its star, the program was discontinued until he could come back from the war. Bye-bye. Now we come to our satire on our American way of living. And our subject is hotels. One of the most uh, romantic hotels in the United States are at Niagara Falls. Let's look in on Bolivar Shagnassy, who's just been married. <laughs> Here we are on our honeymooning. Uh, kind of exciting, ain't it? Say, who's that character hanging on the side of the car wiping our windshield? He's the mirror all day. That's the guy from the filling station. He won't take no for an answer. <laughs> hey, are you hungry? Let's stop and get a hamburger, huh? I'd rather have a kiss. Okay. <laughs> Let's stop and get a hamburger. <laughs> 
soon be in Niagara, you know. Well, how's about another kiss? Okay. <laughs> Say, I think we got a slow leak in our back tire, right? Now. Are you listening, President Lincoln? That's your theme song, sir. And you'll be hearing it plenty during these next few days. Because you see, sir, we still celebrate your birthday here in America. And that's why tonight a small group of us have gotten together to bring you a birthday present. The kind of present we know you'll like. It's a story, Mr. Lincoln. A story that's worth telling on this particular anniversary of your birth. Why, you ask? Well, you see, Mr. President, we're at war again. A group of men rose up in Europe to proclaim that they were going to enslave the world. They've said, in effect, that you were a liar, sir. They've said that all men are not created equal. That what they call the inferior and minority races can never amount to anything. And so we went to war with them. And we're beating them. And we're resolved that never again will their philosophy creep into the minds of men. For we know that it's not the color of a man's skin or the tenets of his creed that determine whether or not he can be great. And this story, one of hundreds we could tell you, proves that. It's the story of a man you freed from slavery, Mr. Lincoln, the simple story of a great American. The story of a man whose work in years gone by is now helping us to win this greatest of all wars. We hope you will like it, sir. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the Council on Books in Wartime, presents the 35th in this Words at War series. Words at War was an anthology of war stories told by the men and women who have seen them happen. It was produced in cooperation with the Council of Books in wartime, promising stories of the battlefronts, of behind-the-scenes diplomacy, of underground warfare, of the home front, of action on the high seas. Each show was to be a living record of this war and the things for which we fight. First taking to the air on June 24, 1943 from New York, it was praised by Variety, as one of the most outstanding programs in radio, by the New York Times as the boldest hard-hitting program of 1944, and by Newsweek as one of the best contributions to serious commercial radio in many a year. Despite airing at 11.30 p.m. on Tuesdays, Words of War stimulated conversation and controversy throughout its two-year run. On Tuesday, February 8, 1944, a story on George Washington Carver was broadcast. Tonight we offer a character study of a great American, based in large part upon Rackham Holt's best-selling biography, George Washington Carver. Our story, told as it might be to Abraham Lincoln, will be presented by Frederick March, while Canada Lee will be heard as Dr. Carver. It happened just about 60 days before you entered the White House and about five years before you made that last visit to Ford's Theater. You remember? But it happened far away from Washington, sir. It was down in Missouri, 
in Diamond Grove, Missouri. There stood the Carver Plantation. It was rather a fancy name for the poor acres of Farmer Moses Carver, and life upon them was made no easier by the jungle law which then prevailed in Missouri. You remember that year of 61, Mr. President? The uh, Missouri Compromise was a failure, and pro-slavery adherents in Missouri continued their bitter struggle with the Kansas Free Staters. Hatred was abroad, and bands of bushwhackers and guerrillas riding under the black banner were a scourge on the land, plundering, pillaging, burning, and murdering. These were the order of the day. Well, there in a cabin of the Carver Farm one evening sat a Negro slave woman, cradling her baby in her arms and gently swaying back and forth as she sang the infant to sleep. The raiders came, laying the lash of their cruelty upon God's creatures. They came to the Carver Farm and carried off the slave woman and her infant son, George. Farmer Carver gathered a rescue party and went off in hot pursuit. The trail led due south into Arkansas. And there, Farmer Carver caught up with the kidnappers and for the ransom of a fine racehorse, recovered the child. But the mother, she was gone. And she was never heard of again. Cost kind-hearted Moses Carver a racehorse valued at 300 silver dollars to get that little black baby back, Mr. President. And I know that never in American history has $300 brought bigger returns to the nation. If you don't believe me, sir, wait and see. That wild ride into Arkansas gave the baby a desperate case of whooping cough. He recovered, but all through his childhood, he remained a delicate little boy. So instead of putting him into the fields, the Carvers, his white foster parents, let him busy himself around the house and in the garden. And that's how he began a lifelong practice of talking to the flowers. (laughs) Some people might call that just plain silly, Mr. President, talking to the flowers. But when that little boy had grown into a man, he explained it to himself this way. In the beauty and aroma and variety of the flowers, I saw my first realization of the Creator's great truth. The truth that there's room on this earth for all, and that it's every creature's duty in life to serve the world and his fellow creatures to the best of his ability, to be as useful, to lend as much beauty to life as is possible. That's why I've always talked to the flowers. They are the little, little windows through which man can see the face of God. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Lincoln, sir. Don't go getting the idea that because this little fellow spent his spare time talking to the creator through the flowers, don't get to thinking he was one of those prissy little children. No, sir. At times, he was a little hellion on wheels. (laughs) When Words of War signed off at midnight... NBC broadcast a 90-minute program for the fourth war bond drive. It was part of an extended effort to raise funds. The night prior, at midnight, Ben Grauer hosted this show over NBC. Fall in line, America. All out for the NBC war bond parade. (laughs) 
command is Forward March. Yes, Forward March to victory, listeners, with more NBC stars in this seventh consecutive war bond parade. Yes, more stars. Well, look, you can see them coming from here. There's Raymond Massey, Nora Sterling, W.W. Chaplin, Dwight Kramer from The Right to Happiness, David Helm, and The Woman of America. That's the New York division. From Washington, Dr. I.Q. And from Chicago, Josephine Antoine and Reinhold Schmidt. Wait a minute, who's that? Why, sure, from Hollywood, it's Kay Kaiser, Red Skelton, and Ronald Coleman. And the Grand Marshal of all, the man who gives the commands to start our marching, John W. Vandercook. Good morning and good evening. This is John W. Vandercook, your parade starter, giving the command to Henri Nosco, our orchestra leader, to strike up the band. (laughs) 